0: Hello, and welcome to Lost in Citations. Today, I am joined by Dr. Melody Cook, and she is an editor and author, contributing author of the book, Intercultural Families and Schooling in Japan, Experiences, Issues, and Challenges. Dr. Cook, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me again.
0: So, Dr. Cook, can you tell us what the book is about and like what are some of the, the themes that you discuss
1: Okay, so basically this book is kind of a helpful guide to intercultural families. So either one parent is Japanese and the other is not, or both parents are not Japanese. So it's kind of a guide to dealing with some some of the issues, not all, we, we couldn't possibly get all of them, but some of the issues that are common To families like ours and how we deal with them.
0: For example, can you can you mention some of the issues? Um,
1: Yes. Uh, The book is divided into three parts. Um, The first part is called Finding Our Way. And this is about the identity issues of children and parents in the Japanese school setting. So, for example, um, things like when the child is the child is has foreign parents, but perceives themselves as, as Japanese at school because that's what they're surrounded by or uh we have um a, a great chapter by uh John Dimovich about being um a single dad raising his uh biracial children, but he's he's um raising the children himself right so he's a divorced father and he's going to school and doing the things that mothers usually do oh, wow. um, uh, also about the the place of minority culture um, how can parents keep up their minority culture with their children who are being raised in Japan um, also um, you know when both parents I mean we have third culture third cultural children a little bit Third culture, children. (laughs) It's hard to say. Um, Both parents are not Japanese and are raising their children in a different culture from everybody's. Right. Uh, Part two is about um, dealing with the Japanese school system. So we have um, a chapter about uh, two foreign mothers and trying to help their kids with homework. Um, Kids are given a lot of homework, but if the Japanese parent is not available to help, sometimes the foreign parent is called on. And then what kinds of um, issues come up from that? Um, Transferring uh, literacy and subject knowledge. So this is um, for parents whose kids have been raised partly in another culture, maybe the home, one of the parents, the foreign parents' home culture, and then come back to Japan or come to Japan and how can they transfer their knowledge in different systems. And then uh, we have one um, chapter about um, the overseas uh, school system in Japan, um, or or, sorry, uh, Japan's overseas school system. So that means uh, Japanese schools abroad. Uh So if people are going to spend some time abroad, what are the options for them uh, if they wanna keep their kids up in a Japanese system?
0: Well, it sounds like the book it it deals with basically a myriad of problems yes. <laughs> or issues. Um yes. yeah, gosh, you've touched on a lot. You know, I don't have children myself, but I've worked uh, you know, all my colleagues over the years, or many of my colleagues over the years have children and you know, every issue that you just brought up, I've I've heard about. Um, yes. Yes. You know, so it's interesting. So yeah. in the in the first part you say it's finding our way. Yes. Um What does that mean, really, finding your way? What's the. Well,
1: learning to negotiate, um, learning to negotiate with the schools, um, making your opinions known about things, or even understanding yourself. When a fantastic chapter by um, uh, Jennifer Ifantides. first chapter of the book that's why it's the first chapter it's fantastic and she's talking about her son um, in school and seeing himself as a japanese child because he's in this environment at a young age and he's he feels the same as the other children and she held him in front of the mirror you know and said look you're not japanese and And then she realized what she was doing, (laughs) like posing identity on him. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what finding our own way is every situation is different and every family has to, although there are many things in common, every family has to negotiate themselves by themselves. Yeah. So basically what we're hoping from this book is people can get some hints Mm -hmm. for things they can use. Um, can, I, can I talk about section three? Yes, you can. Yes, <laughs> definitely. I'm sorry
0: if I cut you off. Or I
1: forget. Yeah. Um, so part three uh, is uh, called coping with challenges. Now, this is, um, these are chapters of people who, by, by people who are raising children who have some kind of um, disability or learning disability or um, special need. Um, so we have um, Suzanne Kamata, who's uh, a well-known uh, fiction writer, um, uh, writing a- about raising her daughter, who is deaf, uh, among other issues, um, and uh, in a small town in Japan, and getting advice that was contrary to the advice she'd be she she would be given in the United States for uh-huh. her child. Basically, she wanted a cochlear implant. But in and that which is common in the United States, but it's not so common in Japan. They just expect children to read lips, oh, and then wow. she had the issue of do I teach, do I learn, and teach the child American Sign Language or Japanese Sign Language. So the these were you know really serious um, issues for her to deal with. Um, and the chapter after that is about trying to find a place for an autistic child, a bicultural autistic child. And the amazing thing from that chapter, and I can go into it in more detail later, is that I guess, you know, we have, many of us have kind of, um, well, I don't know, a stereotype or uh, an assumption, make an assumption about international schools that they would be more open to dealing with issues because they are more like schools in Western countries than a Japanese school. But actually um, this person's son was um, refused uh, entry by 13 out of 15 international schools in the Tokyo area.
0: Oh, that's terrible. they,
1: They didn't know how to deal with, Um, An autistic child. And then um, I have a chapter, the next chapter is mine. And it's basically advice for um, adoptive and foster parents, because that's my, my thing. (laughs) I also write for Savvy Tokyo about this. Um, I'm an adoptive and foster parent. And I had to learn what to do and I had to learn how to deal with schools and and I've done research on this and I run a group um, on Facebook um, about this. I'm trying to encourage more uh, people uh, like me um, in intercultural relationships to foster and ad- adopt uh, children because there are a lot of them in need. So. There are issues in the schools for these kinds of children, and I can talk about that more later. And then our last chapter, this is um, this is one by Louise, which is great, too. Um, What happens if you if you feel that the Japanese system is not working for your children um, and you have you want to send them abroad. You'd make the decision to send them abroad. So most of the book is dealing with the Japanese educational system and navigating it. Um, but there are people, I mean, both foreign and Japanese who make that decision because their children are just not fitting in. The Japanese system is not working for them in some way. Yeah.
0: Well, You touch on a lot of issues and actually all of these issues um, are definitely uh, things that, you hear about a lot, if you live in Japan, uh, just out of curiosity. So with the authors for the book, uh, this is an academic, uh, uses academic format, right? Like, so it's, it's kind of like a, is it research-based or is it just narrative-based?
1: It's, it's, some of it is research-based. Some of it is ethnography, um, narrative. We allowed, it had to have a, and, uh, kind of um, academic framing but we left it up to the author to each author to decide uh-huh. how to frame so some are looking at you know different for the um, um, trying to keep up minority culture um, sorry I have to leaving room for minority culture that's uh, Mary Beth Camibepu and she talks about the different ways like to um, kind of encourage bilingualism, like the one parent, one language frame and different other kind of systems that people use. So it is an academic book, it's many things. Um, uh, I'll tell you the story of how we managed to get this published. but because it was many things that I, that was was for some publishers, I think that was a weakness of it. Um, but for the publisher who accepted us finally, that was its strength.
0: It was a weakness because it wasn't um, just one type of book. Yes, because it was varied. Oh, I see.
1: Yes, yes. So, um, can I? Go into the origin of the book. Uh,
0: I would love, I'd love for you. Would to you like to the... hear
1: the funny yes. story? Okay. Yes, I
0: would, yes, I would.
1: So I was approached by a representative from a publisher. Um, I'd pub, uh, kind of a niche academic publisher. Um, what I mean by niche is they publish publish very focused academic uh, books and journals and charge a lot of money for them. And I had written an article that had been published in one of their journals. And so the this representative, I guess, he comes to the JOLT conference, the Japan Association of Language Teaching Conference every year. And he sent me an email and he said, do you want to meet up and talk about possible topics for a book? And I said, okay, Cool. And so we met up at the JOLT conference and we sat and had a coffee and talked and he said, do you have any ideas? And the first thing that came into my head was something about um, intercultural or multicultural families dealing with education. And the reason that came up was I had written and um, I'd done a, a kind of a large research project about Cram School. I wanted to know what people especially people who weren't Japanese thought about cram school. And I wanted to compare their opinions about it with what research I had read about Japanese people using cram school. And one of the things, kind of the side things that came out when we were talking about cram school is people were kind of talking about the Japanese educational system in general and some issues they had with it, like, why do we even need cram school? Why can't the school just teach the things the kids know? Um, things like that. So I said I, I suggested that topic and um, the guy said, yes, yeah, sounds great. Please write up a proposal. And so um, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. And I asked uh, Louise George Kitaka to join me because she writes about um, family things for Japan Times and Savvy Tokyo and so on. I thought she would be a really good um, co-editor. So we wrote a proposal, uh, we sent it to the publisher and it came back and they said, we don't recognize some of these authors. There are many authors here who are not air quotes famous.
0: Oh yeah, right. They weren't—they
1: weren't, they weren't well published researchers or whatever, and—and and, uh, that was true. We had some people who had not done a lot of academic publishing before writing chapters. Um, it came out excellent anyway, but I guess they wanted big names to sell these pricey books I don't know so um they said they could sell it as a standalone it wouldn't fit into any series because there weren't any uh air quotes again famous people in it so um we put that on the back burner uh that would be our you know go-to if we couldn't get any other publisher to take it Uh uh-huh so I don't know how long it took to go through that uh, maybe half a year or a year to get, I think it was about a year from collecting the proposals or sending out the call, collecting the proposals and sending the proposal and getting the refusal. (laughs) It was about a year. So we looked at another publisher. uh, We revamped a little bit, did a little bit of tweaking. We sent it to another publisher And they got back to us pretty quickly and they said, well, it's interesting, but what what is this? Is it stories? Is it empirical research? They didn't really know what we were trying to do. We had a clear idea of what, what we were trying to do, but I guess it wasn't focused enough for them. So they turned it down. So then... We sent it out to another publisher, which was not an academic publisher. And they were, uh, but they're famous for publishing books about Japan and translations of Japanese literature and so on. So we sent it to them. Uh, We waited six months. We didn't get any reply. I wrote to them and they said, oops, we lost it. So could you send it again? So we sent it again. We waited another couple of months, and they wrote back and said, this is interesting, but it's not really our thing. So uh, then we found out about Canlin and Minard Publisher, who, thank God, <laughs> came into our lives. And we sent them the proposal, and they went, yes, this is great. Yeah, We want this. So that, that, that's where it went. I was out for dinner with Louise uh, Sunday night. Her, she and her husband um, came to visit in Niigata. And we're having dinner, and I was telling this story to her husband about we sent it here, we sent it there. And Louise, who's a journalist, picked up on the themes, and she said, basically, it's who is it, what is it, and where is it? right yeah but uh Callan and Minard was fantastic and uh Joe Minard helped us a lot and I think we have a really amazing book um we asked um Fred Anderson who I've known from my when I used to live in um Nagasaki he was a colleague of mine at Seabolt University and I knew he 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 was had lived in Japan a long time. His sons were grown up. And I wanted him to write the foreword for us because he was someone who had lived in Japan a long time and raised children. And in his foreword, he said, I wish I had this book.
0: So when he
1: wrote that, I knew we were on the right track, that we had done something. And he brought up something that was really interesting too, which, which was um, he even asked me to to send him the call to see if we had specifically asked about um, bilingual, making a choice, uh, raising the kids bilingually. Mm-hmm. Because this is a theme that runs throughout the book, that parents in living in Japan at some point might find themselves uh, having to make a choice about language and, and maybe giving up. This idea that their kids will be balanced bilinguals, meaning that their kids will be equally proficient and on grade level in in home language, whatever it is, German or English or whatever, and Japanese. And as I mentioned about uh, Suzanne Kamata's chapter, you know, which sign language do we teach? Right. Yeah. So. So it's
0: tough. I guess I would, guess it would even uh, start with, you know, what language do you speak at home?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What language do you read your children for their yep. first books? Um, yeah. I'm actually surprised that you did not get interest because just looking at the the chapters, they seem like hot topics, yes. like things that anybody living in Japan, even somebody without children would be interested in. Uh, that's just surprising that the publishers didn't see that.
1: Well, maybe it was too specific to Japan. Yeah. And Canlan and Minard, I mean, um, well, I'm also a series editor for Canlon and Minard. That happened after um, I was asked to join as a series editor. And um, Joe said, okay, we're going to have a series called Life and Education in Japan. And so that's, that's what this is part of. Yeah.
0: oh uh, uh, Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So let's go ahead and go back and kind of uh, walk through some of these chapters and you can talk sure. about them as a senior editor for the book. Uh, one that really interests me is leaving room for minority culture. Uh, you've talked about that a little bit already. Can you yes. kind of address that a little bit more?
1: Well, this is this is um I don't want to give it away because um I want people to go and buy it. and it's very reasonably priced.
0: It is very reasonably priced. And it's like ten dollars, right?
1: You're gonna get a a discount code, right, Todd? You got the discount code? <laughs> we can that.
0: give listeners a discount code, yes.
1: We'll give the listeners you get a discount code. Right. Buy the book, it's super even even without the discount, it's really a good deal. You can but we want you to buy it from the publisher. Um, just a moment, let me, so her, her chapter is, she's targeting at, at people who want to raise bilingual and bicultural children, even though the children are going to school in Japan. And she's doing a, a case study of how one family tried to fit in, do both uh, make sure that the children fit into the Japanese system, but that the foreign parents' home culture was maintained. Mm-hmm. So this is an issue. And, I, you know, when I first came to Japan in 1993, I remember being in a teacher's, in the staff room, and hearing some teachers talk about, they were, they were saying, they were English teachers, uh, foreign English teachers, and they were saying, you know, what do you do to get your kids to speak English? What do you do to get you to your kids to speak English? So this was really an issue. It's always been an issue. And I think it's, it's kind of a funny thing because, well, I mean, this is going into a different topic, but I, I wonder that we, if we acknowledge ourselves as sojourners, like we're going to stay and go, or as immigrants to Japan. right? Usually what immigrants do is they go and learn the language of the culture that they have immigrated to, right? Yeah. And, and, and become part of that culture. But for us, we feel this, I think many of us feel a strong need to keep connected to our home culture. I don't think we feel like, because unless we give up our citizenship, we can't become Japanese citizens. Yeah. I don't know how many people want to do that. Um, I, I certainly don't. I'm connected to my Canadian culture and mm-hmm. I don't want to become Japanese. Um, but at the same time, I acknowledge that my kids who have grown up in Japan and certainly, you know, are e- ethnically Japanese um, if they want to use English, great. I don't imagine either of them going abroad to study. I don't see that. Yeah, so I don't, I'm not worried about that. But there are other people who do want their children to have that option to be able to go and go to high school or junior high school in their home country and so on. And so yeah. they want to keep the culture up and the kids in contact with the grandparents right my 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 father, when he was alive, he w- would you know kind of bitch at me a little bit about that. Why doesn't he speak to me? why does, and my son can understand everything he just answers in Japanese, he just doesn't mm-hmm. feel comfortable speaking English
0: yeah, well, it takes time, doesn't it you know yeah. i mean to, to reach that yeah. point of familiarity
1: so it's... for me it's you know in my family, it's a different situation, but For a lot of people, they they want to keep that. It's very important to them to keep that connection between the Japanese culture and their host culture. I I feel as a as an adoptive parent. I don't know. Maybe I don't know. You know, if I'd given birth to my kids, maybe I would have. It would have been different if I had them from zero. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, my son didn't enter our family till he was almost four and my daughter was 12. So these kids came with their personalities and identities fixed. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I didn't feel I could uh, force them.
0: I wonder if one of the things that might be different about, let's say Japan versus our home countries of America and Canada is often for the, the, you know, the, the, the immigrant experience, I should say, the Both the parents might have a shared culture mm-hmm. whereas in Japan often you're going to have a split culture. you're going to have one parent has one culture. So do you think that that makes it harder? Maybe that's that's kind of the issue or the difference between let's say Canada and Japan.
1: Yes, yes that it does make it harder. Like some of the issues that Mary Beth goes into you know that that if parents want to maintain, Their culture with their kids um it's it's not easy they have to think about you know how how bicultural and bilingual do they want their kids to be um how can they you know if the kids are in japanese school and there's a big emphasis on sports and clubs the kids can't if they, if they don't want to lose their standing in the, the clubs or whatever, then they can't go for trips to the foreign parents' home country in the summer. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of things. And then there's the financial aspect of it. If the parents can't, you know, if they're maybe, sometimes it's hard to teach your own kids. So maybe you want to send them to school. Then there's another financial aspect. So it takes a lot of time. It can take money. Yeah. So yeah. to maintain your culture. And then at some point, pretty much every family I talk to, the kids would be embarrassed by the foreign parent. Oh, really? Yes. They don't want to be seen with the foreign parent. Because it's, it's, some kids don't like to be called half and they don't want it pointed out. It bothers them. Right. They don't want to be singled out as different.
0: They don't so, want they don't want extra attention brought on to themselves.
1: Exactly, exactly. And even if it's positive attention like oh kawaii kawaii hafu, you know, oh aren't you so cute? You're so cute and the belief that that mixed race children are all, you know, cuter than mm-hmm. you know, yeah. So yeah. the kids don't want that attention. And, and so sometimes they don't want to be seen with their foreign parent or, you know, my kids make fun of me when I try to speak Japanese. It's like, you know, they're, they're correcting me and getting mad. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, you've lived here so long. How come you can't speak? It's like, well, I didn't come here until I was almost 30. So.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can relate. I came to Japan when I was <laughs> uh, just over 30 and yeah, it's been a struggle. I mean, you know, your vocal cords are just tight by that time and yeah you're just not going to be as fluent
1: and younger. I mean, the younger you come here, the easier it is, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and from a, from a child's perspective, you can see what they mean because even as an English teacher, you know, not even just in Japan, but anywhere in the world, um, any, any English teacher has had the feeling of, Oh, I just want to, I just want to go unnoticed today. You know, I don't want anyone to talk to me just because I'm a foreigner and, um, you know, it, it makes you realize how much that must be magnified for children.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, yep. in a school or at an age when, you know, kids are, the, that's the age that they tease or they prod or they look for any little thing to kind of magnify. And so that must be tough for kids. It
1: is. It is. And some kids are just not interested in the foreign parents' culture. Um, someone I know. Had have, has two kids. One of the kids embraced the foreign culture, liked to go abroad, and uh studied abroad for a while. The other one, no interest, wouldn't speak English, not interested. Yeah. Identified 100% as Japanese, although, you know, mixed race by birth, but by culture, no. Yeah. So, you know, that's why every situation is different. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, it's universal. Um, I'm from California in in America and we have a lot of, um, families that are, you know, Mexican American and, uh, I know two large families and they both have the exact same situation where they have, uh, you know, siblings of eight or nine, 10 siblings, really large families. And both families have the same situation where some of the siblings only speak English. And some of the siblings only speak Spanish when they're in a family setting. Right. And, you know, they'll say that one, some siblings will speak English to their, to them, and they'll speak Spanish back and neither yeah. of them will ever switch out, even though yeah. they could. And so it's, it's, you know, obviously it's just, it's a universal thing that's happening well, all over the world.
1: Exactly. Because the kids have their own identity as well. You know, um, what, one, uh, kind of, uh, funny thing is uh, when my son was in preschool they had to draw a picture for mother's day and he drew a picture of uh, someone with black hair and I'm quite blonde and he brought it home and I was kind of like um well why did you draw me with black hair and he said they didn't have your color Oh. And I thought, okay, I, I think he, that was it that really wasn't the reason. The reason was he just didn't want to stand out. All the kids are drawing a black haired woman for their Mother's Day picture. And he just didn't want to be different.
0: Well, I mean, if you think about it though, when the teacher's handing out the crayons or whatever, yeah, all the crayons are he, probably in, in are black.
1: Except that the, that we they knew he he had that I was right. You know, I was his mom, so they, yeah. they knew that. They knew that. Maybe yeah. they knew that I was dyeing my hair blonde. They knew I had <laughs> They didn't want him to do hair. Take the black one, and here's the yellow one, so you can do the roots black. <laughs> they were
0: checking your roots. <laughs> they literally were checking your roots, yeah. literally, literally no, and figuratively. It
1: just occurred to me, maybe he was drawing a picture of his, his biological mother <laughs> who has black hair.
0: Oh, uh, But I don't be. think so. I, I doubt it. Yeah. Well, you know, I was... Yeah, I, as we have talked before, as you know, I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. And at, at a young age, I don't think I ever thought of my original mother at all. It never even crept into my mind. So, But how
1: old were you when you were...
0: I was... Uh, adopted at l- birth? little under two. I was yeah. about a year. A so year. you
1: wouldn't remember anything? I have no memory at all. That. Yeah. See, no. my, my son, I mean, he was institutionalized at... Um after a month after being born. So he remembered for quite a while, he's forgotten it now because we went back to visit the institution that he had been brought up in till he was three years and 11 months. And the staff, of course, they the staff who were still there remembered him but he couldn't remember anybody. But he remembered his past for quite a few years after we adopted him. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's why I've always respected who he is. It's like he came to us as him, and that's who he is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little bit then about your chapter, about being an adoptive parent?
1: Oh, I'd be delighted. Yeah. Basically, what I did for my chapter was I used my family to illustrate some concepts. So basically, the fundamental concept is that all children who, I mean, maybe you don't feel it. I don't know, but I'd say almost all children who have been abandoned or by their birth parents um, feel this. It's a trauma, right? And there's different kinds of trauma that happen. I'll give you a little teaser. Hang on for my chapter. Okay, so I I talk about the different kinds of trauma, um, like prenatal stress. So the children have, they come out of the womb with some kinds of physical or emotional scars or intellectual problems. Um, Prenatal substance exposure. So that's when the kids, maybe the parents uh, were alcoholics or drug users. Uh, Birth trauma, so anything that happened to the child when it was being born, uh, there might be brain hemorrhages, and that affects learning. Um, Early hospitalization, so surgeries, being taken away from the family for any length of time, Um, abuse, neglect, and other types of trauma, like multiple foster placements, separation from biological siblings, and so on. So trauma is at the heart uh, for these children. They grow up, their brains develop differently. For example, if they're in a, uh, you know, some kind of an institution, we would call them orphanages, I guess, in, in English. They're in that kind of s- situation, and the baby is crying, and nobody comes, then they learn that their needs won't be met by that. And some of the kids shut down. Um, their brain, so their brains develop differently. And they're, some of them, like my son, are um, super reactive. So he, has, he gets upset quickly. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like change. He wants to know what's going on. Every day he asks, when's dad coming home? You know, even if I don't know. Or what's happening in this movie? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. We're watching it together. I've yeah. never seen it. But when, it was worse when he was younger. He had to know. He, he was trying to get control. He had no control. Um, and he was super reactive. And, he, and um, we couldn't change plans suddenly. He was not flexible in things like that and needed to know what was happening at all times. So the kids' brains grow differently and sometimes they have trouble forming attachments. Uh, they have trouble, a lot of them get ADHD, um, autism, other kinds of things. So when when my husband and I were doing our training for foster parenting, we went to the uh, facility where my daughter is from and I noticed, you know, a lot of kids, uh, one little girl, they had, she was really, really cute, but she was tiny. And I thought she was four years old and she was eight. She was just under fed and, and tiny oh, no. and, the, and the staff would have to come on, let's eat some more. And, you know, so, and you could, I could see, and the kids were starved for affection and attention. I sat on the floor and I had a kid on my back and a kid in my lap and, the little girls took out all their barrettes and bows and started, you know, I was like one of those Barbie heads that had when I was a kid, (laughs) I was like a live Barbie head and they were doing my hair. It was so sweet, but it was so sad also. So the kids are starved. Sometimes they'll give their affection indiscriminately. So they're easy prey. Yeah. So basically, the trauma affects them in many ways. And then, then the, of course, also there's going to be implications in education at schools. They mm-hmm. might have trouble making friends. They might have trouble staying awake. Um, they might have trouble studying. They can't sit still. Um, lots of different things. Yeah. Um, and teachers aren't really trained for that so that's important parents basically my message is parents need to go and advocate for their kids and some of the teachers you know they may have a tendency to blame the parents if the kids are acting out in class Um, we had that happen with us which was heartbreaking even the special the special education teacher didn't know a lot about this and so when, when our daughter was um, first in school for the first six, half a year, she was acting out and she'd fight with the other kids and she was, and this was normal behavior for a foster child. But of course they didn't know that at the school. And we didn't know, I had to do a lot of reading and research to, to realize what was happening. And we went to a meeting with her teacher and he said, you're, you're not giving her enough love. And I, I want to, you know, throw something at him. And I, we, I, we were so yeah. frustrated. I mean, we yeah. at that time we couldn't get near her. She wouldn't let us near her. Yeah. She wouldn't let us touch her. We couldn't hug her. Yeah. She was, she was just one angry kid walking around. She, we never knew what was going to happen from day to day. We didn't know it was. I mean, I went through a you know, a period of really severe depression during this. It was really hard. So to be told I'm not giving enough love to the kid was like, you know, it was awful. And then the other thing was that um, she came with a lot of medications. So what a lot of teachers will do and schools will do is they'll try and drug the kids up to keep them quiet, keep them from acting out. And the first six months she was taking them, but she said they made her feel funny. And then we went to her psychiatrist and and she said, I want to go off them. And he said, OK, go off them. And she did. And then she was fine. So it was just the six month, that kind of transition period. It's a testing period and it's a normal part of the process. Um, But, you know, teachers need to be told. Um, The kids, the parents are, they do, they do love the kids. They are trying their best to love the kids, but we have to wait half a year or so to get through this. Right. And also um, doping up the kids and insisting they take medication. That's not going to help. One of her teachers was great. Uh, She, she claimed to hate that teacher when she first started. But by the end of the year, they were really good friends, and and the teacher she just said, "Oh, she's great. She's, you know, she's showing her lovely personality now." And that teacher was very cool and non-judgmental. My daughter has um, borderline intellectual functioning, so it's harder for her to learn even basic stuff. Mm-hmm. She has to work that much harder to get like a passing grade, um, and she would she would be exhausted. And every day at school, she'd fall asleep in the afternoon or for one of the classes, she'd sleep through the class and then she'd wake up and she'd be fine. And the teacher let her do it. The teacher, I I, bless her. She got it. So she let her sleep and she just told the other students, Julie needs to sleep. Just let her sleep. Don't bug her. And she'll wake up and she'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And she stopped doing that, you know, when she got to junior high school.
0: You know, it's interesting you bring that up. Actually, I I have to thank you because I am adopted. And, um, you know, uh, what you're talking about with the trauma, there's a term called RAD, which is um, reactive attachment disorder. And it's kind of, you know, it's really hard for people that are not adopted to even understand Mm -hmm. how you have a different mental paradigm and you just cannot do things um, in terms of like, let's say, affection Like other people can. And when I try to explain it to other people, um, I'll often say, you know, it's like having two completely different cultures, like you talked about earlier, or it's like being gay or straight. Like you have a completely different paradigm built in your mind. And actually, for me, once I found out about it, it was liberating because then Mm -hmm. I knew that there was science behind the way that I acted. And what you said about the teachers it's it's you you were dead on right like you can't it's not that the parents aren't loving the child enough um it's like having sunglasses that don't absorb the rays is like the only way that i could describe mm-hmm. it but for the children that that go through this i mean it's something that happens when you're very young so yeah. Yes. You have no recollection of it happening. You don't know why your, your mental construct yes. is that way, but that's just the way it is. Yeah. And, so,
1: and the kids are walking around with a, like a hole inside or a right. giant, I call it the giant question mark inside.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Actually there was like, a, somebody wrote a book about adoption and they called it the wound that never heals. Mm-mm. And yep. I thought, Oh, that's a, that's a pretty nice way yep. to yeah, yep. they, they phrase it. Yes. Um, So, what so then you know it's it's tough, it's really tough for parents that adopt children. They have to do they're ready to give all this affection and love, yeah, they're not going to get it back, not the way that they think they're going to get it back exactly.
1: Exactly. Um, So,
0: what is your and that's for everybody.
1: That's for everybody. The thing is, when you're living in Japan and you're dealing with schools, what you need to know is that maybe the teachers don't know um, that you need to go. With your caseworker or social worker to the school, and meet the teachers and explain the situation to them, Mm -hmm. and you have to advocate. And then the last thing I'm going, I'm just going to touch on it because I want people to buy the book. (laughs) (laughs) You a
0: very good sales job. (laughs) I
1: might hope so. Um, There are some things that are hard for the kids to do, ubiquitous activities like mother's day and father's day. Mm, Yeah. And that's, that's even hard for kids who have divorced parents. That's hard for them as well. Or maybe a parent died when they were young. That's hard for them to do mother's day or father's day, uh, family tree, but there are other options. Okay. I'll give one for free. So let's say the family tree activity, um, Instead of doing, like, first of all, give all, give many options for an activity and give that option to all the students. So no one feels like this is just for you,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right. just for the one student, that all students can choose to do it. So instead of doing a family tree for your family, research and do a family tree for your favorite musician mm-hmm. or a fictitious family tree of a character in, a, in an anime or a manga, you know? So it, like if it's a language class and you're wanting to use the family words, you can still do that, but you are you don't have to talk about that particular child's family. So questions about who named you, how'd you get your name? they Even those questions are hard. I don't know why my son is named his name, well, we don't know which parent chose it um, of his birth parents. So, right, these kinds of things are ubiquitous activities in school. So we need to be more sensitive and, and offer um, some options and to let teachers know about them. But that's hard too, because one person I researched, uh, what well, I didn't research, I mean, I, uh, one person who I interviewed, said that she brought that up at the school and the teacher got huffy about it and she was worried about negative effects so you have to be super tactful in japan yeah in making suggestions like this
0: um yeah. uh, although I, I will say in defense of the teachers you know i because I, i've been in that situation myself I think a lot of people, um, that are adopted, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like you learn to deal with it and you understand that the teacher's got a million things that they've got to do. And, um, it's, you know, I have to deal with it almost on a weekly basis because of my name. So I was, mm-hmm. my name is Roger Todd Bukins and I go by Todd. I only identify as Todd. Uh, <laughs> I never use my first name ever, uh, and I was named after the man that adopted me and I have no ill will towards him at all, mm-hmm. but also I have his last name. And so he really was in my life for a very short period of time. So not mm-hmm. only did he adopt me, but then he, my parents got divorced so oh then he was God. out of my life. So, oh.
1: um,
0: it's like, yeah, all I, you know, I went to, all I, I went to Thailand and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. Like that's kind of <laughs> how I feel about my name. Uh, <laughs> And it's no ill will towards that, that, that person. Yeah. But it is true. Like, you know, you don't, your name is not your name yes. type of thing.
1: Yes. And uh,
0: yeah, you just have to deal with it. So people yes. all the time will say, they'll call me Roger. Even sometimes mm-hmm. students will call me Roger. And i will be like, no, actually my name's Todd.
1: I see. I'm I didn't Todd. know your name was Roger until I see it written down. Cause I always knew you was Todd.
0: Right. Yeah. Back yeah. from
1: our Nagasaki days.
0: Right. But you know, what's <laughs> interesting about uh, talking about this is it's, almost fitting because your issues that you address about adoption is almost the perfect microcosm of the same issues everybody else has in japan that's not japanese like it's yes you know uh, um, it's about
1: being different yes right
0: right and actually adopted kids like i know a lot of kids that are adopted um and we all have different problems we do have yeah. that one kind of common thing but it isn't like there's one common result of being adopted
1: mm-hmm.
0: so it's kind of similar i guess to all the international people in japan yes. they're all going to have different situations with their families
1: yeah. i think it the thing is in japan I any mean, the this the really this and and disability and special needs and lgbtq all this anything different <laughs> it's going to be magnified in japan because people are kind of weird about difference in japan right so if people are different in any way i think this is just part of you know all of my authors are trying to say this is what it's going to be like. And here are some things that you can try and do maybe to mitigate against any problems that you get. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you have some great chapters. Um, are there any other chapters that you, that really stick out that you yeah, are fond I, of? I
1: really liked um, John Dumovich's chapter is hilarious. Not hilarious. The, the hilarious thing in it, because he's, he's really laid back and he writes about it in a really fun way. Um, his chapter is called, um, I want to make sure I get it right. The teacher called me Okasan, <laughs> which is mother yeah, Japanese. Yeah. Experiences of a non-Japanese single father with bicultural children and Japanese education systems. So he was doing everything that, you know, PTA or, or going to the class and doing activities, cooking activities. So here you're imagining this man wearing the little apron yeah. in the cooking class. That right. to me is hilarious. <laughs> 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 but, but that, you know, because it's usually women who do that stuff. So I think it's great, you know, a man doing it and saying, hey, you know, a man can do this um and also i mean he was pretty chill about it which was which is really good but he's setting an example to other people but he's also telling us that he had a really good support system like his work didn't mind if his kids came and stayed in his office and you know the other people were helpful with his child he's has a decent relationship with his ex so you know, she has. She, he can. She can do babysitting and help that kind of thing. Um, he's the custodial parent. Um,
0: Was that hard for him to get care as a no, non-Japanese? No,
1: actually, it wasn't. It wasn't. I think because his ex uh, agreed that he should be the custodial parent. Mm-hmm. So he's very lucky in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think he may get you know, he may have a little, um, I don't want to call it, but it is, it's male privilege. He has a little privilege in that, you know, people will go, Oh, he's taking care. Oh, he's so great. Taking care of these kids. Let's help him. Mm -hmm. You know? So the other people at his workplace would run to help and help him with his kids. Whereas if it's a woman, she's kind of expected to do it by herself.
0: Right. It's just Tuesday, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Another day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, well, you bring up some great points, and you have a lot of interesting uh, chapters, and I've read some of them, and I look forward to reading the book fully. Uh, Any last thoughts about the book?
1: Uh, Buy it. (laughs) (laughs) It was a labor of love. Uh, We spent five years on it, and actually, although I am saying buy it, buy it, it's not, we're donating the royalties um, when we started this journey, it was when, about when um, our mutual friend Michelle Steele was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Oh no and while we were going through this process, you know getting the book done, uh, Louise's husband was also diagnosed with it. Oh. and so we are ge- we are giving our royalties to pan- can- pancreatic cancer research. And Canlin and Minard uh, will top up. So it's a decent amount. I don't know that we, you know, you don't get big royalties on academic books. So, um, but whatever, whatever we get, we are not seeing any of it. That's going for pancreatic cancer research. So this, this book was a labor of love in many ways.
0: Oh, it definitely sounds like it. Well, you definitely will get an extra copy from me in that case. So thank you so much for your time <laughs> Dr. Cook. I really enjoyed talking with you today. And also I have to give you uh a congratulations because you are the first repeat guest on the podcast. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> so you were in another um uh episode about uh female teachers living in Japan and then yes. now you're here with your book.
1: Yes, I was uh I was an editor on that as well. Right. Yeah. So, so oh, the book
0: is I'm sorry excuse me so the book is intercultural families and schooling in japan experiences issues and challenges yes and you are dr melody cook thank I you am. so much
1: you are very welcome thank you for your interest
0: if you'd like to contact the show the best place to find out about us is our website lostincitations.com here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved our hope is to help academics educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners.
1: But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.